0: technology can no longer be isolated from the rest of life and only discussed in particular circles among scholars, professionals, or those that just like to geek out on tech. This is because the innovation is too rapid, the tools are too powerful, and the stakes are too high. Elizabeth Bramson Boudreaux, the CEO and publisher of the MIT Technology Review, explains that people must consider how technology is impacting their lives and suggests journalists need to play a role in framing these conversations.
1: There is a quote that we talk about a lot here, professor of the history of technology named Melvin Kranzberg, but he said, technology is neither good nor bad, nor is it neutral. Meaning you can't just assume that technology isn't going to impact the world we live in. And so the journalism that the team here creates is asking those kinds of questions so that we can be conscious, sentient actors in the world that we are finding created around us, in some cases, creating ourselves.
0: The current media landscape is more focused on the moment-to-moment, play-by-play of the events of the day rather than a broad, contextualized view of current events. Additionally, conflict is promoted rather than thoughtful debate that provides diverse perspectives with the intention to educate customers. There is a definite need for a trusted media source that can provide accurate information and analysis that sets the table for conversation and understanding. This is perhaps even more necessary in the realm of technology because that is touching nearly every aspect of human life on this episode of it visionaries elizabeth shares how the mit technology review has undergone a process of digital transformation to expand its forum for ethical thoughtful debate about technology if people are not part of a debate about the ethical considerations concerning a certain technological advance that doesn't mean decisions won't be made that impact them hopefully An educated public committed to sorting through ethical issues and coming to reasonable conclusions can influence leaders to make good regulatory choices. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today we have a special guest. Elizabeth Bramson Boudreaux. She is the CEO and publisher at MIT Technology Review. Elizabeth, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: We're excited to have you here. But before we begin, want to make sure everyone knows exactly what is the MIT Technology Review. So if you could please tell us what it is and what does it do.
1: So MIT Technology Review is an independently owned media company owned by MIT. We publish a website, we have podcasts, we have events business, we have a print magazine, we do lots of things.
0: That is awesome. And to give us give our audience an idea, like MIT, we typically think of it as, you know, an engineering school whereas we would assume everything is in the realm of engineering. Give us an idea of what subjects you guys, you know, post about or, or produce.
1: Yeah. MIT is, you know, as you know, as a massive um, institution that's got obviously top-notch engineering, but AI, computer science, you know, social sciences for that matter. MIT Technology Review was set up in 1899, the first ever tech magazine, uh, because in 1899, there wasn't even really a thing um, called (laughs) technology, Uh, not really. And it was set up to share insights about what was happening at that time in uh, MIT's laboratories. And it's kind of the same, kind of different today. Now, in addition to what's going on in MIT's laboratories, of course, we pay attention to what's going on all over the world. Not just in in education, but you know companies, et cetera, and so we cover biomedicine, we cover AI, we cover climate science, we cover robotics, we cover a whole range of vast um you know vast range of uh, emerging technology subjects.
0: Yeah, you hit it right there, which is that our worlds have forever become intertwined. It used to be like technology was a separate thing, like, oh, these few people have a few gizmos. now it's oh, okay, it's just part of our lives. And, you know, so one of the things we I have open right now is technologyreview.com. I have it opened up right now. You guys hit on like social issues and like how technology is going to transform the world. I can see right now on the the front page, it's talking about what's what can potentially happen, how deep fakes are going to potentially impact women, this new AI applications that can swap women, you know, your face onto someone else's face, specifically in pornography that could potentially, you know be very damaging to society has
1: some real problems. Yeah.
0: Like, so you guys, you know, you hit on like major, I guess, would you say that's like a major, the big focus, like how like our societal structure is going to change as it melds with technology? Is that kind of where you guys spend the most time?
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I think what we've realized and what society, what all of us have realized over the last, uh you know, arguably the last 10 15 years but certainly the last 5 years was how much technology is actually is actually impacting the lives that all of us are living whether or not we're technology people right, right. every i say that every job is really a tech job now even if you're working in Starbucks which is where my teenage daughter worked for the summer i mean she's constantly in, engaging with technology even in a barista kind of position and so it's really important to understand the decisions that have been made you know, perhaps without us fully understanding, that makes technology change the world we live in. And I think we have a better sense for that now, after say 2016 election, when we understood, you know, Cambridge Analytica and all of the things that that um, unchecked technology and, in that particular case, data and uh, ability to get content in front of people. Um, was going to how that might impact the world we're in. And now we see it, of course, really, really concentrated in, dis- in misinformation and challenges that we have in the political polarization. There is a, a quote that we talk about a lot here um, of a professor of history who's no longer a um, professor of the history of technology, is no longer alive, named Melvin Kranzberg. But he said, Technology is neither good nor bad, nor is it neutral. Yeah. Uh, meaning, you know, it's um, it, you can't just assume that technology isn't going to impact the world we live in. And so the journalism that the team here creates is asking those kinds of questions so that we can be conscious uh sentient uh actors in the world that we are um we are finding created around us in some cases creating ourselves.
0: No, that that is fascinating. I agree with you. We we work with uh or the people that are on this show. They come from all these different fields whether it's AI, whether it's machine learning, whether it's network security, cybersecurity. Inevitably, what happens is whenever there is a technology, most for most of us, like the technology is being created for the greater good. It always is. That's the spirit behind it. Well, you know, 99% of it is for the greater good, but there are use cases where it can be deployed nefariously. I'm curious, like, how do do you see this? Because, you know, part of being a publication is you want to, of course, cover these major things. And then you also, I'm, you know, from what I can tell, it's, it is impartial. It's not trying to say one way or the other, just like, Hey, when this technology advances this group, it opens the door for this problem as well. You allow your readers to kind of decide where they, where they sit. You know, I'm curious in your perspective, how do you think technology, and this is maybe a too broad of a question. I don't know, but how do you think technology is going to be, I guess, regulated in the future? Because it is, it's becoming more like whose job misinformation, you kind of hint on it. You know, the Social platforms saying, "Hey, we're not in charge. We didn't create the content, but you're enabling Mm -hmm. the distribution of misinformation." So it's a really touchy subject of who's in charge. Mm -hmm. I feel like someone's going to have to step in and say they're in charge. But I'd love to hear your perspective on how this is changing our, like, the way we live.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's look, it's a really important and complicated question: how best to regulate technology, particularly big technology, whether social media, Facebook, or or Google, which has access to so much data about us. You know, I think what was kind of um hard to stomach was when we had you know Mark Zuckerberg in front of congress a couple of years back oh, yeah. and there were questions from the folks the con- uh, congressmen asking him you know how do you all make money you know such a simplistic understanding of facebook this, that just didn't exist in that body yeah. that was in the position in that moment to exert some authority and some, um, you know, take some positions on how best to regulate this, uh, this mammoth organization. And I didn't, didn't give me a lot of confidence because it was clear that the folks there were, you know, very much out of their depth. The, The, I'm talking about the, the members of Congress were very much out of their depth when it came to really understanding me. If that's the kind of question they're asking, how are they going to really understand things like bias in algorithm?
0: I agree. You can't, you can't have people make these decisions that are that so far away from what it is. Totally. Like, how could you foresee the future solutions if you can't even explain what it is?
1: Right, and I think I think there there is a belief that you know any kind of regulation is going to be hampering. It's going to be problematic. You think about China. China's not going to re- do the same kind of regulation. Is that going to handicap the United States in the sort of global race for technology dominance? And I think you know that's a very black and white way of looking at it. Sure. And I don't think it's like regulate the hell out of it or don't regulate it all at all. I think there's a, a lot that we can do that would still enable American technology companies to innovate and do exciting things, grow, et cetera, um, without us worrying about um, you know knocking, kicking them out of the kneecaps vis-a-vis China. Um, so I think there's a lot more that can and should be done. Uh, again, I think it's gonna require some pretty, pretty aggressive change in the individuals who are looking at it um, because we've got a real uh, absence of knowledge.
0: No, that makes total sense. And from your position, you know you got an interesting position, in my opinion, because you get you're at the forefront of these technology. You, you talk about societal impacts, big issues. How do you, I guess, teach your team, or how does how does the company work? How does MIT Technology Review work? Where you guys sit down, take a look at the issues, and of course, you're going to write about really groundbreaking things and how it impacts people and humanity, society, technology, industries, whatever the case may be. Give us an idea of the inner workings. How do you choose the topics? How do you guys choose what makes it to publication? Like, we'd love to hear how you, you know, how you choose what you write about.
1: Sure. So I think the first thing to, to share is that, you know, so as the publisher, I run the company and the editorial team, which is who, who are the journalists, who are the reporters who are out there kind of trying to understand the impact of new technologies, do some digging up investigative work. And also, you know, a lot of like looking at what's coming out of these laboratories to better understand where the future of technology is going. Those folks report into an editor-in-chief who um, leads them, motivates them, and you know, sets the vision for that part of the, of the company. And there are certain things that we do each year. So we pick 10 breakthrough technologies at the beginning of each year, 10 technologies that we think are going to change the world. Wow. And the editorial team sits together. I'm actually not in those conversations and I don't think I would add value to them. (laughs) They sit together and and come up with a whole bunch of long lists and argue it out and then kind of determine which ones they think make the list. And those conversations don't just take place internally, but also with, you know, their own um, reporting contacts and academic and, you know, um, uh, business relationships that they've cultivated as, as journalists to say, you know, what are you? But what are you seeing? But what's after that? And what comes after that? And what could be the consequences of that new technology? So that's, that's a process that those guys engage in, those people engage in um, entirely without my uh, involvement, um, as I say, to the betterment of that process. <laughs> Uh, and then, you know, they, we publish it and um, it goes out to our audience and um, we do podcast episodes about them. We do, you know, various other things. Uh, we, we run certain events that, you know, really focus on those t- sorts of things. We have another list, which is the 35 innovators under the age of 35. Yeah. And that comes out every year. And uh, we present those folks at our MTech MIT event, which is actually coming up in a couple of weeks time here. And they, you know, each one of these uh, thirty-five innovators who are, you know, at a pretty early stage in their careers, they do a three-minute um, kind of an elevator pitch to the audience, and they they get really heavily coached on how to do that so they're not boring, but they hit on the key points, and then they you know, move off the stage, and it gives them a chance to to uh, connect with an audience of, you know, in some cases investors, in some cases, you know, collaborators of uh, various sorts. Uh, so it's uh, it's a quite a a rich network that we cultivate for those folks. But that's essentially, how, that's essentially how those two things work on the inside. You know, the journalists write these stories, they go up on the web, we track how well they do, we think about whether we need to, you know, do more digging in a particular topic area or, you know, expand our coverage into new technologies. And we're always paying attention to the metrics that help us to understand what's hitting and what maybe isn't. Uh, So that we can, you know, our aim is to not only get people to pay attention to what we're doing, but to get people to kind of prove their interest in the value that they derive from us by um, by reading us, coming back, rereading us and subscribing and doing all those sorts of things you'd expect from a media company.
0: Yeah. And one of the things we hear about in the technology, given, especially on this podcast, you know, we hear about all types of attribution tools, marketing tools, you know, ways to track what user engagement, things like that. Yeah, at the same time, we hear about publishers struggling. And it sounds like MIT Technology Review is not one of the publishers that's struggling. It's, it's hopefully thriving. Um, when we hear about other publishers and other lines of business are exploding, they're getting acquired. And then others are raising their hands and saying, you know, we're struggling. We see like layoffs at different publishers. What do you think is happening? Like, is it is it that the data isn't good enough that people aren't listening to their data? Like, from your perspective as a publisher, what does it take now today? Because uh, does it require you to really? laser in on niche audiences, I'd love to hear your perspective on this because you guys have a thriving publication. You know, you would think that all publications theoretically could thrive because they have the toolkit to be like, Hey, this is what our audience is interested in, but it doesn't seem that way. (laughs) When I look at the service, I'd love to hear your perspective on the landscape of what it takes to run a publishing business right now.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard. I mean, we're, we're doing well, but we have a long ways to go still before I would feel comfortable saying thriving, right? There are parts of our business that are today thriving, and there are other parts that are not quite there yet. And the the challenge simply is that there's so much competition for reader attention. And there is a, you know, it's largely dissipating this, but there's still a a bit of a sentiment that the internet is free and that you don't need to pay for content on the internet. Whereas, you know, we, we, we grew up understanding we paid for magazines that arrived at our houses or newspapers that arrived at our homes. There's something about the digital world that feels like it ought to be free or it's, you know, it's going to be paid for by the advertising. But the advertising market's gone to Facebook and Google. So that makes it hard for the publishers. Right. Yeah. So for us, what's really, really clear is we have to be razor sharp on what makes us special and different, because there are a lot of media companies out there who are telling stories about tech. Sure. So we're really focused on emerging tech and We think that the brand and the connection and the relationships and the sort of special sauce that we get from MIT gives us a unique perspective on understanding which of these technologies are actually going to be the real deal and which of them are kind of hype and nonsense, as well as, as I mentioned before, you know, what that impacts, what their impacts would be on the future and the world that we all live in and uh, want to live in. So we're leaning hard on the differentiators uh, and there are certain things that we've discovered in Sometimes it was a discovery. Sometimes it was just a a kind of getting honest with ourselves that we weren't going to compete on. So we're not going to be the first folks out there to tell a story. In most cases, we do get occasional scoops. But that kind of news-driven cycle of of storytelling is something that the New York Times or the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal reporters are really going to be able to do. They have the scale. What we're going to be focusing on is what's the specific View on that new technology that should help you to take a decision whether it's good or bad for your company, your family, your world. Um, and that's something that uh, we think we can do uniquely well. But that's really like that's vital, you know, as, you, as being kind of just another tech publisher is, isn't the business it once was.
0: Yeah, I noticed right out the gate when I saw your publication. So I'll be straight up I did not review MIT Technology Review prior to, prior to you joining us on the podcast. But when we did land, when you did land on the podcast, we we're like, "Oh, let me check out this publication I want to read it." And I just noticed, like, the depth of story was significantly different. Uh, it wasn't so much the surface, like you know, a lot of tech. You kind of hit it. A lot of tech publications kind of hit on, like, the news cycle. Like, it'll say, like, "Oh, today Mailchimp sold to Intuit for twelve billion dollars," but not the why. Like, why would a why would a tax software want a marketing stack? Uh, you guys kind of hit more on the why side. I'm curious from like how the inner workings work a little bit. How tightly integrated are you with the school? I mean, it sounds like you definitely have some integrations, like you definitely have access to, you know, talent, knowledge, people, but like give us an idea that like a lot of the professors at MIT, they want to work with you. Do you guys collaborate with them a ton? Is it mostly student driven? Like, I'd love to understand a little how tightly integrated this, uh, the two organizations are.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. I mean, historically it was really, really like when I described in 1899, it was tightly integrated sometime in the 122 years intervening the two entities really pulled apart, or I should say, technology review really pulled apart from, pulled away from the Institute. Now we're owned by MIT and funded by MIT. Our investment plans are are backed by them, but we're entirely independent from them. So we can write anything we want about MIT or any other Institute or organization we want to, but what rather where we exercise that kind of um, that editorial, um, I guess, autonomy is by tracking down stories that we think are most interesting to our readership, among which are MIT alums, but not exclusively. And so what we, but what that means is because we have MIT, you know, kind of as our, um, as our benevolent owner, it gives us a chance to get introductions or, you know, we get that phone call returned first because not only is the chair of such and such a department knows that we're kind of part of the extended family but the chair of the department over at Stanford are, also sees the connections and has a there's a there's an MIT ecosystem that knows us and cares about our uh, the kind of work we're doing. So we lean hard on that and try and play that up while also saying, you know, you know, when when necessary, which is rarely, thank goodness, hands off. It's you know, we're autonomous. And that's actually incredibly important to the institute as well as to us, because they understand for us to be a true journalistic. Voice, we need to be unfiltered by any any ownership, just like any media company wants to be free of the ownerships. I mean, everybody's owned by somebody, right? <laughs> and uh, it's important to be uh, to be autonomous uh, in the in the world of media.
0: No, this is super fascinating. Hearing how this is built out, it's, it's I think it's really cool that it's actually independent. Uh, I don't know if everyone knew that.
1: Well, it's interesting what you said too, um, Albert. I'm not surprised when you said earlier, you know, that you weren't familiar, and that is exactly the, it's a wonderful illustration of the challenge that we've got, which is that we've been around for forever. Uh, We've been doing this for forever and folks like you who are evolved people, you know, squarely in our target market uh, need to know about us. And so that's, that's why I do things like this. That's why we do, we, you know, we've, we've done a great big push on our social media campaigns, et cetera, and so forth because there's an audience that doesn't yet know about us because we've been, you know, for various reasons having to do with, you know, this, the size of the ambitions have been, I think, rather, um, I guess, uh, confined and we are confined no more. So we're aggressively trying to get in front of a, a wider array of people who look like you and whose lives are, you know, oriented towards technology as well.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm, I want everyone, uh, maybe I should, We'll plug, let's, we got to plug this publication because I think and I'm looking at it right now on a cursory level of today's, you know, today's episode, or I don't know. Do you guys update it daily or is it?
1: updated daily. Okay. We have a daily newsletter, which you can get in your, it's called The Download.
0: I'm going to subscribe right now.
1: <laughs> yeah, and you can get that. And that will push, that will push the day's stories to you, Albert. And uh, you don't have to really remember us. You can just, because we'll, we'll remind you of us in your inbox.
0: So one of the things for anyone out there listening, uh it's a little plug for you, Elizabeth. Right out of the gate, I could tell this is a little different than all the other publications I've seen. It's not software centric. It's just just technology in general. I'm just going to run through some subjects to give our audience a little idea of what's happening. We already mentioned uh, AI app swaps that are going to impact women in pornography. We got pandemic technology leaving public health experts out. Gig worker gaps that are potentially in Biden's vaccine mandate plan. I can tell the integration of business is very clearly here. How NASA is going to slam a spacecraft into an asteroid. (laughs) That's definitely a good hook. I would read that. Why you should be more concerned about internet shutdowns. That's fascinating to me. And meet Altos Labs, Silicon Valley's latest wild bet on living forever. Right out the gate, I can also tell you, audience, this team is good on their creative as well. We got like a little meme culture of Jeff Bezos playing chess with a, let's say, nefarious character. I'll just (laughs) say that. Um, This is a very dynamic array, uh, including... I'm just looking at the final one, lithium ion batteries, making a big leap in a tiny product. It looks like some type of, I know what a whoop is. It's a fitness tracker, but uh, pretty interesting. Sela. Oh yeah. We've, we've had Sela on a, uh, on our show, CELA te- uh the battery company or the improving the batteries. So it's a huge array. And, and I think the way you guys do it is very good because I think you're touching on technologies that for a lot of these technologies that could impact all of us. Whereas, you know, like a software application, like, I don't know, I don't, maybe I don't, I, I there's Thousands of software companies. I only use a handful, you know?
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, I think there's, what we're aiming to do is look at kind of big technology areas like AI itself is massive. Yeah. And, you know, tell stories about the way decisions are being made around those technologies the creations of those technologies. You know, some of the most interesting stuff we do is, for instance, on, on, in biomedicine on CRISPR. So we broke the story about the CRISPR babies back about a year and a half, right before the pandemic, that were born in in China. And you know that topic itself is not just about these two babies that were born in China, but what is CRISPR going to bring to the world? Uh, what's it going to mean if people are altering or making edits to, um, you know, the future of their children? Um, and it's a fascinating question, and it's you know it's fraught with lots of ethical debate. Um, it's the kind of thing you talk about it at the dinner, the dinner table, and you'd be surprised at you know, where people differ on, on that. So if you knew you were going to you know, pass down a, a debilitating disease, you might feel differently about it than if you didn't have that as a, as a concern. So anyway, these sorts of things that we, you know, the idea of unchecked technology, I think gives everybody a little bit of a stomach ache today yeah. uh, in ways that it didn't maybe you know, 10, 15 years ago.
0: Yeah. The ability, the the things that can be done now are just, um, you know, just different. Like the way they impact us, it's a lot different than what it used to be. I remember, uh, I mean, I'll tell a story about myself as a kid. When I was a kid working with my mom in a data center, I accidentally turned something off and I guess I erased all the backups. Um, this is like circa 1984. <laughs> like it was literally powered by a key. I turned it off. Um, because I'm a four-year-old and you know my hands
1: Well, it's a key. You're a kid, you're a little kid, it's a key. Of course, you want to. I mean, I, I I know that. I understand that absence <laughs> of impulse control. I, I
0: get it. And I remember like it, it was a big deal for my mom, but it was like it just impact it really felt like it only impacted her time. Like, you know, it took her a day to get it back up and running and things like that. Now our technology has made it very easy for someone to just do a couple keystrokes to really materially impact someone's life. I think anyone who's ever had their identity stolen knows this firsthand. Like you spend An ungodly amount of time just trying to prove that you're you, which is crazy. Like we've had people on the show talk about how that should be easier as well. You know, when you when you have such a wide array of subjects, you know, I I want our audience to learn a little bit about you as well, since you're you know you're sitting at the top of the organization here. It looks like we you know we we looked you up on LinkedIn like we do all of our guests. It looks like you started in research, quite a bit of research, including working at the Economist, which is uh, you know a very famous publication as well. Give us an idea of what you've done over your career that's led you to, uh, to this point.
1: Yeah. I mean, I started, uh, you know, early, early when I was still in college, I wanted to be a reporter and I thought, yeah, I was going to go into journalism. That was going to be my path. And, and then it became pretty obvious to me that I didn't have the talent to be a really good reporter and writer, that it just wasn't, it was too hard. And I saw people around me just you know, steaming past me. And I realized actually that what I was more interested in, where I got kind of the, the lights flickered on in my brain, was much more around the business side mm. and thinking about how to make it all work, how to leverage what this person's done to please that audience, how to think about what that client cares about. You know, I just found I was really much more interested in the business and the business model, which is really. What I ended up, I spent a, a bunch of years as a consultant, but then I ended up mostly when I was at the Economist, really uh, building up kind of on the business side, and then and then I was in the UK, I was in London at the time, um, and then for family reasons we moved back to the Boston area, and uh, I came to Tech Review. I've been here for about six years now.
0: No, it's pretty fascinating stuff. When you first joined Tech Review, you know you had mentioned before that you had done a lot of your research in uh, in on the business side of things. Were things different or was it like as expected? Like, did it operate differently from The Economist or was it shocking to walk in there or?
1: Yeah, it was shocking to
0: walk in, (laughs) yeah. What did you experience?
1: It was a lot. There was a lot that had to be, um, there were a lot of things that needed to be rethought. So uh, it needed to become a digital media company. It had been um, print for all those years and hadn't really figured out how to get past that, how to really modernize. So there was a lot of work that needed to be done to do that because you can obviously reach a huge audience digitally and you know the cost of doing that is significantly better than that of print and you know there's lots of other other things besides but that that was clearly needed to be kind of redone and so we had a lot of organizational change that had to happen in the intervening years and so where we are now is uh excited you know that's what I mentioned a moment ago like you know a lot of things that were kind of Needed to be tidied up uh, or in some cases ripped out and replaced with new technologies or different um, sets of skills. Uh, And now we're in this place where we're like, you know, made such great progress and the business has been growing and the profits have been growing. And now we're looking for much greater expansion from this point forward, which is why I'm doing things like this. And as I mentioned before, various other, other uh, marketing and uh, promotional types of activities so that we, we meet the Alberts of the world, um, so that uh, so that now that we've kind of got our act together, we're ready to scale.
0: I want to restate what you just said because I think it's a it's surprising to hear, but I want to make sure I understand this. You mentioned when you got in there that you were surprised that you didn't that this, so this is circa 2015, yeah, and that there was not enough emphasis on digital. I can tell you, I haven't discovered anything non digital for de- it feels like more than a decade now. Yeah, why do you think there was a lag? Lack- Lag to that arena.
1: Well, I mean, I think that I think that the media world. There's a there are some. There's the new media that I'm saying new and in inverted commas. Like new media, maybe since like 2005 or so. That digital native, yeah. right? And those folks were clearly on it. I'm talking about you know sort of the verge and folks like that that've been you know that. Vice, et cetera, that had set themselves up and have been always digital and knew from day zero how they were going to operate in the digital world, yeah, and then there's the legacy organizations, including technology Review, that had a print magazine for all these years and needed to figure out you know this is this is what we're known for how do we how do we still tell stories in in digital and how do we think about our our res- human resources because we still are going to tell stories in print, but you know, and that takes a certain n- number of people, and uh, it's it's got certain demands on on our time. But we also need to learn how to how to tell stories in the digital world, and so there's a there's a a kind of little bit of a needing to let go of what you know to reach for what you're what you know is ultimately a bigger prize. But you have to be confident enough to let to start to let go of some things. So. So I think that's kind I mean, it's not just us, like this is, this is happening to a lot. This is, has happened sure. to a lot of, including The Economist, a lot of organizations that had to kind of learn how to let go of the ways that we've always done it in order to reach for a bigger prize. I would say simply that I think this, this organization hadn't been, ironically enough, given its technology and its MIT, I think hadn't had the kind of um, clarity around what the payoff would be of a digital focused company um, didn't have necessarily the the leadership or the investment that was necessary that we have today.
0: Yeah. One of the things that I think about when I, I see any publishers that are doing really well is like, you know, the velocity. I think that's what's, I think that's, what's kind of shocking sometimes is how much velocity needs to happen for this to, Was that something that when you first took over, like the, the business was used to, or it's like, have you guys increased your velocity of articles? I was thinking about this because like I think about certain things that have grown really quickly in media and publishing. I'll name Morning Brew because that was one that like grew like super fast every day. Like the rundown that they would do was so substantial that like and, and you know it was told in a way that I think was kind of fun to read. Yeah. But I was thinking about like if just two people because it started as just two people had to write that every single day, like I can't imagine how much time and effort that that went into that, which was crazy. And we as People, we're we're just getting used to it, right? Because when we get served these summaries, right? Because I think a lot of this listener base is probably subscribing to a newsletter of some sort. We get these summaries, and we're given like 20, it feels like 20 options at least. Yep. We have 20 articles to hit on, and then every day you gotta give me a new 20 things to eat. Yeah. And I'll and maybe I'll pick one. Because if yeah. I might pick That's none. Right. <laughs> That's right. So was that yeah. something that had to change at your company? Like how much velocity like the organization had to put out enough content that the modern consumer wants.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when you're writing for prints and you think, okay, I'm going to give someone a, a magazine every other month. Yeah. That's a whole different, that's a whole different Cadence, isn't it? Right. Yeah. It's a, you know, they're longer articles, they're more immersive articles. Well, as we know, you know, how many times do you, when you're standing in line at Starbucks, like, how deep are you going to go into that article? You know, you get yeah. to the place you're like, I don't know. I don't want to read that. I, I don't have time for that. Or I've, I've lost interest. It just isn't the same kind of experience as when you're sitting in a chair, cup of coffee or whatever, and you can lean back and read, you know, and you're excited that it's, that it goes on for pages and pages. It's just a different kind of reading experience. So we had to really get clear, uh, think about digital journalism, digital-first journalism, and that's the kind of transformation that we had to go through. And that meant, you know, in in you know, meant new leadership. It meant uh, new writers, or or in some cases, t- coaching old writers on uh, existing writers on how to how to write more for for a, a digital audience. Challenging to be sure, but uh, but clearly has paid off. Uh, I also want to say another thing, which is that we're lucky that the investment behind us is from such a stable entity or organization as as MIT. Right. And a lot of, you know, you mentioned you know, this, these these media companies going out of business or getting acquired or you know, layoffs and that kind of stuff. And you no, know, that was happening even before the pandemic. And then it really accelerated as the pandemic came down. But that's a difference in working here and leading this company as opposed to others, which is that we have a multi-billion dollar institute behind us that is you know, very stable and actually physically kind of behind me right now, um, <laughs> that is very stable. And, you know, but you know, we're one of many different areas of investment as you might imagine for MIT, um, they're investing in all kinds of things, right? So we don't have the kind of private equity or venture capital like we need you to we need you to five X this thing and that's because we plan to sell you. I mean the, a lot of that stuff that you saw with saw and that you referred to with layoffs and whatnot is because there is a there is a, a, an investor behind them that intends to sure. flip them or to you know to get a to get their exit. And that's not the world we operate in. So we have some luxury from that. I also think that, you know, we also don't have uh, you know, I think I, I don't know the details of the Morning Brew story, but I um, I know enough to know that they ran, raised you know a lot of funding. Um, So sure. what we've got is a little bit more of the steady flow and not the bursty, great big volumes of of investment. So there's always a little bit of the trade off on the other side of it. Like I can't go in there and say, all right, I I need twenty five million dollars because I'm going to quadruple the size of the and the organization, you know, overnight. Um, it's you know much more. Um, Measured and steady than that, which is fine. Uh, it's just it means that our competition, our way of competing, has to be a lot more sober. I think.
0: Yeah, no, that, that makes total sense. I mean, the, like I said, the depth of article that's found on MIT Technology Review for the listeners out there, go check it out. I think you're going to find something fascinating there. One of the things that you also are clearly in the battle of, you mentioned to it earlier, you alluded to earlier. I can see right, you know, is the human perception that the internet is free which is a challenge because i can see for example on MIT technology review there are certain articles that are gated you do have to be a subscriber to see them talk about that like that aspect of your of your business because that it's very true like that's the number one thing publishers have a really hard time with is they it's because they can't get people to pay for a premium then they say okay well then i can downgrade my writers or you know the I know that I know some freelance journalists who talk about like the prices per piece now keep falling. Yeah, it's like people yeah. just want like, hey, throw a bunch of keywords, give me a clickbait article, I'll sell ads on the rail. I can. That's what I'm going to do for my business. Yeah. Um, you you guys clearly aren't going that direction. Yeah. Talk about that like that challenge to pull people over because, on the other hand, we also see the rise of very deep and specific knowledge because the rise of Substack is really fascinating, which is people have. For, and, and for anyone listening out that is not aware of this, there are literally people out there that run newsletters that have like that make over a million dollars a year just writing a newsletter for their dedicated group of people. Which is, if you had told me this was possible three years ago, I said I would be like, no way. There's no way people are going to subscribe to someone's newsletter because I'm like I'm in that boat. Content is everywhere. Content, like I'll find something. Yeah. Talk about that dynamic you guys are pulling out because there clearly are people that are willing to pay. Yeah. It's clearly a lot of people that don't want to pay. Like, how do yeah. you get? Because it's worth being, I agree, it's worth It's worth whatever the fee you're charging, but I'd love to hear like how you think that struggle is going.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's worth it too. And yet I don't expect that it's the kind of thing I think you have to wake up every morning and earn. Yeah. Meaning if you're writing the kind of story that you described where you sort of, you retell the news story that someone else has told and you throw some keywords in there and <laughs> I mean, who's going to really, you were not going to, people aren't going to read that. Or they're definitely not going to read the very next story that's right beneath it, right? They're not going to stay on. They're going to read it. It's going to be one and done. And yeah. that's, that's a challenge that, you know, gets it back to what I mentioned earlier, which is why are they going to read us? What is special about this publication? And what is, what is it, the special voice in the perspective that we bring? Like, why would you read us as opposed to, you know, any other publisher out there who's telling stories about, about technology? And the answer is because we have this particular unique perspective and we have this way of of looking at the impact of new technologies and the growth of new technologies and how they're going to change the world that we live in and how they might be improved upon or how they might be made worse if bad actors got involved. I mean, there's a particular view that we take, right? Yeah. And I think if we're not bringing that to bear, then people are not going to see the reason to uh, subscribe to us. And one of the things that I think about a lot is folks like the New York times and the Washington post and the wall street journal and the, increasingly the LA times, you know, they are writing more and more um, they are broadening their, their coverage. Right. So they're not just writing about politics sure. and international stories. And um, in the US, US uh, storytelling about, you know, what's going on in various uh, pandemic or fires or they, they're actually beginning, you know, they haven't, it's not just beginning, but they're getting more and more investing into technology into lifestyle and culture so that you will subscribe to the New York Times and continue to to uh, renew your subscription. So the challenge for a, for a publisher like us is to be sure we're adding some layer of knowledge and insight above and beyond that of the New York Times, right? When it comes to tech because otherwise some, for a large audience people they're going to be like New York Times tech coverage I'm good. I don't need more than that. So what we have to be able to say is yeah, you you know you have your baseline you have your base knowledge and you're always going to have a sense of what's going on in the news but if you really care about tech you've got to go a little bit deeper just like if you really care about travel you might need to have a travel specific subscription if you really care about i don't know cooking you might need to have a cooking subscription on top of that or you know if you're really into race cars or whatever it might be um we need to be a cho- the tech choice in your you know your your subscription your uh, your media diet Otherwise, you know, we are not, there's not going to be a compelling enough reason for people to continue to read us.
0: Well, you won over me as a reader because I think, this is, I think the articles you have are fascinating. Like I said, for everyone listening, this is not just a review of what is happening. MIT, in my perspective, takes a, almost like a good, good cop, bad cop view on big pieces of technology that are going to change the way we live. And it's not just software driven. So for everyone out there that thinks uh, it's just software, it's not software. It's it's everything uh, from vehicles.
1: Yep. and we have. I, I will say we have we have newsletters. I discussed. We have a podcast. We have podcasts. We've got one called "In Machines We Trust," which is all about AI and the automation of everything. It's a very good one. We've got, just finished our second season of that one. Uh, and we have an events business as well, so there's there's a lot of, to us that um, even if you haven't heard of us before, this is a good moment to go to technologyreview.com.
0: No, I totally agree. Thank you for plug. You know, I, and I want you to plug those events. It's pretty awesome. But before you go, Elizabeth, I want to tell you that it is time for the lightning round.
1: Oh, the lightning round. Okay. <laughs>
0: the lightning round is brought to you by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Elizabeth, this is where we ask you questions of your world outside of work Okay. so our audience can get a better perspective of you. Sometimes work questions slip in, but it's not. So, you know, since you are the CEO and lead publisher of MIT Technology Review, we got it. We do have to ask this one question. What's an emerging technology that you are most excited for that you think is going to benefit? We can start with your life. You can say the world at large. What do you think, what is emerging technology that you were just super excited to see come to fruition? Robots. Like what kind of robots? Cause there's two, like.
1: I want robots in my house. <laughs> I want robots taking care of my, my yard. I want robots taking care of my cooking and my cleaning. But yeah. That'd be great. <laughs> I'm waiting. I'm all in.
0: Do you have a Roomba?
1: I don't have a Roomba because I, the way my, my house is set up, but I will say I have looked at the kind of the, the lawnmower version of Roomba, yeah. which exists uh and um may or may not have that in my amazon cart
0: <laughs> i've not seen the amazon uh the, excuse me the lawn Roomba yet it's out there but i do want to know if it cuts in straight lines or is it all erratic cuz i don't know if you've ever seen a Roomba run but it's kind of like all over the place like <laughs> is there like a rolling blade just like all over your lawn
1: it's a great question because as cuz anyone with a lawn knows is there is some <laughs> you know it's one thing to cut your grass but to cut it in neat rows that's next level yeah Great question.
0: Yeah. But before we go on the the robots thing, we had LG on our show not too long ago. And I mentioned um, folding machines. For anyone that's ever had to do laundry, folding is actually what takes up all your time. He says it's very complicated to do a folding machine.
1: Totally. Yes. It is very complicated because of the different dimensions and the ways. Yes. I also, as a high school student, worked at The Gap. So I know all about folding. <laughs>
0: So you're currently in Boston. Mm-hmm. Give us an idea. Of what do you like to do outside of work?
1: I like to go for hikes and take my dog for a walk. Uh, I have two teenagers, uh, two teen- teenage daughters. So uh, I like to do that kind of sorts of things with them. And I also do a bit of furniture restoration and, uh, you know, sanding, polishing, sometimes painting.
0: For personal keep or for resale?
1: So at the moment it's for personal keep, but I have uh, more pieces than I need. And so my husband is um, encouraging me to think about for resale, but I haven't quite got my act together there. So at the moment, my garage is kind of chock full.
0: Listen to that. Elizabeth might be in the side hustle game soon, slinging furniture on the side.
1: It's a real, it's a real side hustle. I just don't (laughs) know. I'm, I'm not sure I've got that kind of time, but maybe someday.
0: We looked you up on LinkedIn and it says you had you got your uh, MB Executive MBA at London Business School. Is that so? Did you actually reside in London?
1: I did. Yeah, it was when I was working at The Economist that I was doing that.
0: What is one thing that you miss about that that city or that country?
1: Gosh, I miss so many things about that city. I just I think you know what I love about London is it's the it's like the it was this is pre Brexit. It's like the capital of the world so in London, almost no one I mean there are an awful lot of londoners and and, and British sure. folks there but in most room you most rooms you're in you've got folks from all over the world and it's um I mean it's I think it surpasses most any city in that respect, including New York
0: how long did you live there? six years were you able to navigate the streets? How long did it take you to navigate the streets?
1: yeah I, th- uh, I mean I, you had to, you know you had to have your app out but I even got <laughs> Decent at driving, believe it or not.
0: Listen, I always remark when I talk to anybody, it's like I don't think you understand how hard it is to drive in that city. Like it is, it was easily the hardest.
1: <laughs> you know, it's hard. It's hard to drive in any city you don't know, right? I mean, right? And so, um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it was fine,
0: not a problem. So, when you're you're currently in Boston, are you a boss? Are you a sports fan? Not really. Not not a sports fan. What is what is something uniquely Boston that you would recommend if they came to travel to Boston?
1: I think you have to take a walk on the river. I think you have to go for a walk along the river. And you know, if you're inclined, a jog along the river is, you know, is is uh is is pretty classic.
0: Well listen, if you're not watching the YouTube version, the view that Elizabeth has is epic. It is the Boston downtown skyline. It is waterfront is the best way I could describe it. Like I don't see, I see the water. This is the legendary spot. I think where anyone who's doing crew in a movie is probably filmed doing here. Although Elizabeth has says that after eight o'clock, most people aren't rowing anymore.
1: Yeah. They'll be back around five, but it's mostly first thing in the morning.
0: Well, Elizabeth, I want to say thank you for joining us today on it visionaries. Thanks for sharing some of the things that you're up to at MIT technology review. Thanks for letting me kind of geek out a little bit over some of the headline articles and, uh, Thanks for sharing your perspective on groundbreaking technology, your overall career, and thanks for sharing some of the things you're up to and how, you know, how stories get selected. Pretty fascinating. 10 big bets every year. I love it.
1: Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.